Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and this is a talk I, in part, just put together, and in part, I've been working with GE Healthcare on, and it's part of their uh, educational series, but this is the one that uh, I just gave here at Hopkins, and I thought I'd share with you one of the most common questions on CTSS relates to oral and IV contrast material, and we had that information in a number of places, but I thought we ought to get it down and put it in one place. So let's take a look at that. So oral contrast, we use one of two things. We use water. We use Deer Park spring water. I guess you can use it from any park, but uh, Deer Park is the one we use. Use whatever you got, but that's how we do a lot of our CT angios, just a neutral agent. Second thing, oral positive contrast. For years, we used Hypake or the equivalent of gastrographin. We've never used barium. But now, a couple years back, we switched to Omnipake. So we use oral Omnipake, and I'll speak about that in a moment. For IV contrast, we use one of two agents, Iohexol, which is better known to you as Omnipake, and Visipake. Omnipake, we use 350 concentration. Pam Johnson wrote an article a couple years back in AJR showing you that if you look at all the journal articles, that's an ideal concentration to use. Yes, you can use denser contrast, but it does not add anything. And in fact, some articles show that too dense contrast actually decreases your diagnostic capability, not increases it. So for our money, 350 is awesome. And then we use Visipake in select patients. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Now, why oral omnipake? Well, the advantage of a low osmolar contrast media for a GI contrast is that it's poorly absorbed for the GI tract, so there's essentially no chance of getting a contrast reaction. If the patient does have a perforation or aspirates, uh, there's low toxicity, so it's rapidly dissipated from the lungs if aspirated, unlike gastrographin or barium. And if there is a perforation of the abdomen, it's rapidly absorbed without consequence from the peritoneum. Because uh, dilute omnipake has no taste, you can't tell it's present, patients drink the solution, drink the water quickly, which in this day of rapid throughput is very critical. You don't want someone drinking their oral contrast like they're drinking a martini and spend an hour and a half drinking it. They need to be able to drink it straight down so transit can start. It's very stable in bowel secretions. You don't typically have artifact. And I can't remember any patient who ever had GI distress in my experience. By accident, we found the great protocol. For every 10 cc's of Omni 350 you use, that you put in a gallon of water, you increase the attenuation value by t about 10, between 10 and 11 Hounsfield units, which means if you empty a 100 cc bottle of Omni 350 into a gallon of water, your attenuation value is between 210 and 220 if you would scan the, the bottle, but if you scan the patient, it's up to 230 to 250, which are very nice numbers. We also are looking at using it for CT angiography because we control density. If you say used a density of 40 to 70 Hounsfield units, which means 20 to 30 or so uh, cc's of contrast, this should work well. And potentially, this will allow us to have the best of both worlds bowel opacification, but bowel uh, contrast not interfering with us seeing end vessels. And if you look at just some examples showing you very nice transit time, lack of artifact, volume rendered in MIP, a patient with multiple small nodes uh, in the small bowel mesentery, or this example, axial images, good opacification, but what's impressive is look how nice it is in 3D. Very nice visualization of the patient's normal bowel. Looks like a very nice, well-designed small bowel study. And again, there's none of the artifact, there's none of the flocculation or dissipation or just uh, 
breaking of the contrast column and whether it's 2D or 3D imaging, that indeed is the case. When patients do have pathology, look how nicely you can see the abnormal fold pattern. This patient had Crohn's disease, very prominent thick fold pattern, and you can see it beautifully here or in this image. So when patients do have disease, the processes are well seen, there's no artifact present, there's no interface issues. Or this example with abdominal pain, which shows a nice mesenteric mass, which ended up being lymphoma. This also shows that uh, oral omni has a good transit time. It's not going to reach everybody's cecum like this patient in 30 or 35 minutes, but it does have a good transit time. Uh, the longer you wait, the better it is, of course, but it does have a very rapid transit time. And here's just two more images showing you very nicely the interface in 3D between mass and bowel. So just a wonderful agent if you're going to be doing 3D imaging. So that's our oral contrast, oral omnipaque, 100% of the time. Uh, adults, pediat pediatric patients, and everybody in between. Now what about IV contrast? Well, IV contrast, the good news is IV contrast is very safe. The bad news is there are adverse events. And here's a list of adverse events. We're all, all aware of these. The two we tend to deal with most relate to the patient feeling warm or a funny taste or pain. And on the flip end, patients with renal disease, patients who develop renal-induced nephropathy. There are many other things, but fortunately they're rare. And so what I'll do is, let me just speak about these two issues. Now, pain and heat, uh, someone talks about major and minor issues. Uh, major is when it happens to you, minor is when it happens to somebody else. So one could say that heat or pain is a minor issue, but if it distracts you from paying attention during the study and you don't hold your breath correctly, the study could be ruined. Also, in terms of pain, I want to make the point that with the uh, isosmolar agents or even omnipaque, you don't experience pain when if you have extravasation, so it's a great warning. In the old days, techs would know one cc extravasated, patient would be, would be screaming. Today, it ain't going to happen. So if you wait to think about extravasation until the patient feels pain, you're going to miss the extravasation. So you need to be in the room, hand on the patient, making sure there's no extrav. Just simply waiting to, for pain is going to be a late process. That's when you have mass effect is now when you have early extravasation. So that's a key point. Now, we'll also talk about renal failure, as I mentioned, and some of the issues involved there. I took organic chemistry in the 70s, I think, and so I'm not going to share with you the wisdom, but I did get an A in that course, but I don't remember anything else about the course. Uh, there's no doubt, however, if you look at these formulas, that contrast has gotten safer over the years. And the isosmolar agents with an osmolality equal to blood are indeed the safest agents in our experience and everyone else's experience. Now, let's just look at some of the things that relate to these isosmolar agents. If you ask about pain, what about this pain thing I mentioned? Well, most of it comes from the literature from intraarterial injections. And regardless of the study type, you can see from this chart that there's significantly less pain if you use an isosmolar agent, and that's particularly true if you go to larger volumes of contrast. Now there is one study in CT by Becker, and that study very nicely showed you that patients only had occasional issues with IV contrast, 
when iodixanol or Visipeg was used. So it's again a very, very safe agent. So one can summarize that uh, if you're doing uh, contrast, patient pain, patient compliance increases with an isoosmolar agent because they have less issues. Uh, although tolerability has not been addressed in larger studies, it is something that's clear on a day-to-day -day basis and an advantage of uh, isoosmolar agents. Now what else? What about the kidney issues? Now, especially in the era where we're concerned about MR agents, uh, the whole issues with gadolinium uh, and nephrosclerotic, nephrosclerosis, NSF, what should we be thinking about? Well, first of all, what is contrast-induced nephropathy, or SIN? Well, it's defined as the onset or exacerbation of renal dysfunction after contrast administration without other identifiable causes. And typically, you talk about relative increase from a baseline value of 25% or an absolute of 0.5. Now, in saying that, it's very important to recognize that if you give contrast today and you do a creatinine tomorrow morning, you may not see a change in the patient's creatinine level. The creatinine level after contrast typically peaks at about two to three days. Typically, 72 hours is the magic number. And typically, if it does get elevated, we'll go back to normal at about seven to 10 days. The three days is important because when you look at trials that have looked at the incidence of contrast-induced nephropathy, you want to make sure they're all looking at the same date. If you image somebody and check them at day one versus day three, whatever agent you check on day one is going to look far better than the agent you check on day three. So again, very important to recognize the pathway of what creatinine does. Now, in terms of contrast-induced nephropathy and CT, CT back in 02 used to be considered the second most common procedure to, uh, re to lead to hospital-induced acquired renal insufficiency based on contrast. And I think I bet you now it's probably number one. Not that we're doing a bad job. In fact, we use less contrast than ever for CT. But the issue is that uh, the amount of CTs we do, at Hopkins we do 120,000 CTs, probably 90,000 have IV contrast, I would guess. And so we do so many more of those than the number of angiograms we do, which are literally in the thousands. And so there's no doubt long-term uh, CT is going to be the big issue. Now, if you ask the question how often people do have issues, the numbers are all over the board. And again, it's not a surprise if you follow outpatients, healthy ER setting, it's going to be a small rate of sin. You take ICU patients, multiple morbidity, comorbidities, multiple issues, well, is it a surprise you would see a higher number? But I think most people would say 3 to 4% range. Now, what things can you adjust? How do you kind of prevent these issues? Well, some things we don't prevent. The patient comes to us with a history. You have diabetes, you have chronic renal problems. That is an issue. We can limit the amount of contrast we give. The more contrast we give, the more likely sin, but it's not a one-to-one -one relationship. We can make sure we choose the right procedure. Do you need CT or can ultrasound be helpful? We can change the contrast agent. I'll speak about that, but when you look at the data, isoosmolar agents are critical in lowering the risk of sin, and so you could choose that. You gotta think about whether you should be giving preventive regimens. Should you give bicarb? Should you give N-acetylcysteine? Should you give theophylline? Should you give ascorbic acid? What should you do? All possibilities that will impact on the big picture. And then, of course, putting it all together, 
that's how you kind of get that patient's risk profile. There's no doubt the more issues you have, the more likely you are to have problems. And so we always say renal and uh, issues, prior history of renal disease or diabetes are the key risk factors, but there are many things. Patients who are hypertensive, patients who are hypotensive, patients who are anemic, patients with myeloma, patients with sickle cell disease, those are all increasing risk factors. Now, on a daily basis, we know that the key ones for us to recognize are renal disease and diabetes, and it's been shown in this very nice article by Tippins that if patients said no to those two questions, do you have diabetes, do you have a history of renal disease, then it's a 98% chance they have a normal creatinine level. There are other issues with creatinine levels. You know, patients who are on certain nephrotoxic drugs, patients who are on non-steroidal inflammatory disease, HIV patients, particularly solitary kidney patients, patients who've had a other contrast study within the past 24 hours or so, those are all potential issues that one needs to deal with on a routine basis. And so it's very important to really consider those possibilities. Um, now, in terms of doing this, we need to kind of develop a way of doing risk. Uh, one thing to comment on is you need to probably get creatinine levels in most patients. It's easy on inpatients, it's easy on oncology patients, it's hard on brand new add-ons or brand new outpatients. We do our best to try to get them from outside institutions. Um, we typically, when we had to, would get uh, the patient's creatinine levels drawn at uh, just before the CT scan, but your hospital, like ours, I'm sure, the express testing takes forever, and it just isn't an efficient method. We're now looking at point-of-care testing. So again, something that can indeed be very, very valuable, something that I think we can look at. So let's look now at how we do risk assessment. But the hour is running late, and uh, why don't we just stop there and we'll pick it off from right here. Now with that, have a good day.